Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of you, some of you, enough of you, enough with you, uh, no, enough of you noticed uh, that last week's broadcast began with me saying the word so and uh, abraded me for that or debrided me for it. And uh, I, I just want to point out that the, the whole introduction of last week's broadcast was to point out how sleep-deprived I was. So that would be the, your first clue. Um, a hello from uh, London, England, where summer has made a um, kind of a conditional return appearance for a few a few a few days. Interesting. The, not really. The um, back in the states, there is a tradition. I think it's fair to say, of, uh, and I'm going to use a uh, an Obamaism now, where the folks. That's the Obamaism. The folks at the big table uh, encourage the folks at the little table to uh, fight with each other over the scraps, which you would think, one would think, inures to the benefit of the folks at the big table. And this tradition is being honored again this week, we see, by uh, the news stories that have come out about Legroom rage. Legroom rage. The, um, the the tendency of passengers in coach to get uppity when the passenger in front of them has the nerve to recline their, his or her seat, thereby encroaching into the legroom, and let's face it, headroom too, uh, if you're bending over, of the uh, passenger behind. Now, this has resulted in some con- conflicts, some upsets, some planes diverted and landed prematurely. You've seen those stories. And uh, and as I say, it, it, uh, it seems to me to fit into this pattern, this historical pattern, because um, what good does it really do to uh, have a knee defender, which is the uh, device that's now being sold for nineteen ninety five? Thank God it's not $20 so I can afford it. Uh, which prevents the seat in front of you from being reclined. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna last. Uh, but let me just say this: wake me up when the uh, the passengers who are upset about the limited amount of legroom and coach start taking up the issue with the airlines, people who oh, through the years steadily have been encroaching on legroom, and uh, you know, like a frog in boiling water, finally. They no, the passengers noticed it's been they've been creepingly getting the seats closer together and people were just going oh yeah mm. and all of a sudden boom all right so as I say wake me when they uh, start turning on the airlines I think I'm in for a long nap and now we're not number one a nice uh, nice collection of evidence ladies and gentlemen that the United States of America is not in the lead in so many, many areas. You know, perhaps, that uh, we are not number one in Internet broadband connection speed. Did you know where we, where we finish? The United States' average speed is 10 megabits per second, MPS. 
according to the internet company Akamai, that's good for 14th in the world. We are number 14. But wait. According to the Telegraph newspaper in London, Switzerland has just retained its place as the world's most competitive nation for the sixth consecutive year. We're not the most... What? I... But weren't... Aren't we... High levels of spending on research and development and strong cooperation between the academic and business worlds had helped the company to maintain high levels of productivity and its position as a top innovator. I'm talking about Switzerland. Switzerland, we're not just for cuckoo clocks anymore. No, they don't even need to say that. This according to the World Economic Forum. But we're in second place, no? No. Singapore. The United States did climb nine places to third. We're number three. We were number 12. Thanks to the strengthening recovery. You didn't notice it? Probably hasn't gotten to you yet. Japan posted the biggest improvement among the top economies, rising three places to sixth. Because the United States wasn't in the top ten, so therefore. (laughs) The World Economic Forum said the world's third largest economy continued to enjoy a major competitive edge, that being Japan, in terms of quality and innovation. So we're number three there. And a um, quarter of a century ago when the world in 1998, 1988, sorry, lightheartedly ranked 50 countries according to where would be the best place to be born that year, this according to The Economist magazine, America did come out number one. The Economist Intelligence Unit has um, again attempted to measure which company country will provide the best opportunities for a healthy, safe, and prosperous life. Its quality of life index links the results of subjective life satisfaction surveys, how people say they're, how happy people say they are, with objective determinants of the quality of life across countries. Being rich helps. Things like crime, trust in public institutions, and the health of family life matter too. The index takes 11 statistically significant indicators into account. Some geography are fixed. Others may vary slowly over time. Social and cultural characteristics. Enough of the... um, Introductory verbiage about that. Where do we, where do we uh, finish on the list of the best countries to be born in? Well, number one, <laughs> again with the cuckoo clocks and the cheese, Switzerland. Number two, Australia. Number three, Norway. Number three, Sweden. Number four, five, Denmark. You notice a pattern? Norway, Sweden, Denmark among the top five. Yeah. They're those unhappy uh, socialist countries. Uh, Singapore, number six. New Zealand, number seven. Netherlands, number eight. Canada, Canada, number nine. Hong Kong, number 10. Finland, number 11. You're noticing uh, in the country I haven't mentioned yet, right? Right behind Germany, right ahead of the United Arab Emirates. Coming in at number 16, the USA. Oh, no, we're we're tied with Germany, right behind Belgium. Belgium, ladies and gentlemen. They don't even have the same language in Belgium. Walloons can't talk to the Flemish, but they're ahead of us as a place to be born, according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is, I guess, uses intelligent economists. I don't know. But number 16, you know, that's, that's, that's plenty good enough to tell the rest of the world how to live, don't you think? Hello, welcome to the show.
sunny afternoon And I can't sail my yacht He's taken everything I got All I've got this sunny afternoon Save me, save me, save me from this squeeze I got a big fat mama trying to break me And I love to live so pleasantly Live this life of luxury Blazing on the sunny From London, England, holding on to the summertime by its by its fingernails. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Hey, Henry Kissinger has a new book coming out this week. I don't know if you've noticed. He's on the book promotional jag, making uh, appearances on one appearance on the Sunday Yak shows. He's on the Sunday the front page of the Sunday London Times. The book is coming out all over the world. What a gift to the world! And. Um, Henry Kissinger thinks that you know the United States has been a bystander in the Middle East. We got to go all out war on the on the uh, jihadists. We've been a bystander in the Middle East since we invaded Iraq. <laughs> Just got out. Recent recent bystander, but that's Henry. Is that Henry Kissinger, the war criminal? No, that's Henry Kissinger, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. I forgot. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. The story of golf in Rio, in Rio's Olympics, took another strange twist this week when a Brazilian judge ruled that no more ground could be broken at the site of the Olympic golf course.
But according to Golf Week, the irony is that course construction was completed months ago. Recent work at the uh, course, which will herald golf's return to the Summer Games after a 112-year absence, who noticed, has been focused on grassing the course. Yes, only Golf Week uses grassing as a uh, gerund, as a verb. Ten holes have been grassed, (laughs) and five more are scheduled to be grassed when the designer makes a site visit next week. Ty Votaw, a PGA executive, wouldn't comment, but Judge Edward Klausner, Eduardo Klausner, sorry, is presiding over a lawsuit brought against City of Rio and a developer scheduled a hearing later this month to resolve the dispute. The Olympic course has been fraught with problems regarding permits, construction, and environmental issues, uh, as I pointed out to you on this broadcast a couple of weeks ago. The oddest twist to this tale is that the course was approved in 2012 when Rio City Council passed an ordinance that allowed the area to be used as a golf course. The city government then granted the appropriate permits, yet a public prosecutor who works for the city is bringing a lawsuit. Many observers say the property involved has served no environmental purpose, but this is Golf Week magazine pointing that out. The Associated Press reported the judge's proposal would need to move the golf course away from a lagoon on the property's south side and toward a multi-lane highway on the north. By shifting the course northward, a 400-yard-wide green corridor could be opened. However, given that course construction has been completed, short of the few remaining holes to be grassed and any aesthetic improvements, such a design change would be kind of challenging. Says the judge, it is in society's interest that the Olympics take place, and it's also in society's interest that the environment be preserved. What has to be observed is legality, and within legality is respect for the environment. Another nutty judge. Welcome back, golf. We've missed you. Welcome back to the Olympics, that is. It's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? State regulators in Ohio have suspended operations at two deep injection wells for fracking. This this uh, week's news about fracking, ladies and gentlemen, focuses on water. Because you need water to get gas, it turns out. We've talked about how you, you use up a lot of water, screw up a lot of water, turns into wastewater, but... There's, there are other angles to it as well. Anyway, Ohio State regulators suspended operations at two deep inject, injection wells where they inject the wastewater in northeastern Ohio after discovering possible evidence that the operation of injecting the wastewater way down deep caused yes, an earthquake. Ohio is earthquake country now, thanks to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources issued an order to American Water Management Services Agency spokesman called Saturday's quake, or last Sunday's quake, sorry, relatively minor. Well, okay, let's wait till an earth shaker, shall we? Uh, The spokeswoman said the suspension is effective pending a full investigation. American Water Management Services recently had received permission to increase 
pressures at the site. A, a citizens group, Frack Free Mahoning Valley, had called for immediate halt to deep injection of the wells after the earthquake. The suspension was a prudent thing to do, said a geologist at Youngstown State University, Ray Beersdorfer, who's affiliated with the citizens group. He wants the state to release more information regarding the pressures being used at the site. In uh, a couple of years ago, Governor John Kasich halted disposal of fracking wastewater surrounding a well site in the same region after a series of earthquakes was tied to a deep injection well. The state uh, placed seismic monitoring devices in the area after those earthquakes. Well, now they know what it's like to live in California, except for the swimming pools and and the weather. A new study in the journal Environmental Science, Processes and the Impacts, my favorite environmental science journal, by the way, offers one of the most comprehensive analyses yet of what's in a type of waste called produced water. A byproduct of fracking, peer-reviewed study, shows that while fracking produced water shouldn't be allowed near drinking water, it's less toxic than similar waste from coal bed methane mining. That's reassuring. Don't drink that either, then. The the takeaway from this study, according to Inside Climate News, is that uh, some new compounds they, they found... You know, our, our old friends, barium, chromium, copper, mercury, arsenic, and antimony in uh, waste, fracking wastewater. Those can cause high blood pressure, skin damage, liver or kidney damage, stomach issues, or cancer. But uh, they found some new organic chem- uh, chemicals in the wastewater. Surprising ones, actually. Halocarbons, or halocarbons, some of which are potentially toxic. They're not native to the geology of the area being drilled in, nor are they found in the man-made fluids injected down the well during fracking. How do they get there? Well, there's pressure on the fracking industry not to keep using more and more and more and more and more and more water to inject into their vastly increasing number of wells. I've pointed out in this program from uh, studies published at... uh, and made public at oilprice.com, that one of the reasons so many wells are being drilled is because the output of fracking wells peaks sharply and then starts falling after the first year of drilling. So they have to keep drilling more wells. More water, more wells, more water. So there's pressure on the drillers not to keep using new water. So they use, reuse some of their water. And when they, or they use some reused water from uh, municipalities, you know. It's been treated with chlorine to get rid of the bugs. And this study finds that it's the chlorine in that reused water that mates, not the chemical word, but you know what I mean, that bonds with things in the soil to create these new halocarbons. We should be grateful, shouldn't we? They got halos on them and their carbon. China holds the largest reserves of shale gas in the world, but much of it may never get developed, according to oilprice.com, because of one major obstacle, scarcity of water. Here you go. A new report from World Resources Institute says China suffers from high water stress. Sounds like something you'd take a pill for, but but no, it may prevent it from ever fully developing its vast shale gas resources. The problem that they may increase their natural gas consumption by three times over the next 25 years, unless, yeah, right. 
China is putting a lot of effort into developing shale fracking expertise. Exploration is already underway, but nearly the entire extent of the basin being explored suffers from extremely high water stress. Groundwater shortages, many of its feeble rivers dry up during certain times of the year. Drilling and developing shale gas requires, as we've said, massive amounts of fresh water. An average shale gas well in Pennsylvania can use 4.5 million gallons of water during the drilling process, the equivalent of the daily water consumption of 11,000 American families. Over 60% of China's shale gas reserves are in areas suffering from high to extremely high water stress. This could cause tension with communities or other businesses that are also in need of water. Like, say, agriculture. Not just China. Mexico and South America stand out as two other areas that could see water shortages delay or derail the development of shale gas via fracking. What the frack? Yes, you go into falsetto when you observe this phenomenon. I do, don't you? And now, ladies and gentlemen... Time for me to read the trades for you. From the Pointer Media Wire, NPR's Local Stories Project launches. You know I'll read it for you. Don't even have to give. But please give. But I'll read it for you. NPR's Local Stories Project officially launched this week. The idea of sharing local stories with a bigger audience actually started a few years ago. The project itself has kind of been churning and gradually expanding since it began as a really tiny experiment in 2011, says Eric Athas, senior digital news specialist. He works at NPR Digital Services on the editorial coaching team. The experiment started in 2011 with KPLU in Seattle. Athos and his team took stories from the station and shared them through NPR's Facebook page, geo-targeting them to people in Seattle. What we found is the stories we targeted did really well, he said. They resulted in record traffic to KPLU's website. As the experiment grew, they started looking at the stories that got shared and developed internal tools to help local stations think through their pitches, polish, and edit. NPR now targets posts from 36 stations. They're a really specific type of story. It's a story that's unique. It's interesting. Stories that the local community cares about and the stories they'll react to, Athos said. In curating these really unique local stories that are rooted and created by people at these stations, we discovered that many of these stories would be really interesting or relevant to a broader national audience, unquote. The stories are created or tailored for a digital audience, Athos said. He and his uh, uh, team gathered the most successful, looked at the data from the stories, and started labeling them. They found some similarities that eventually led to a framework of nine categories. Framework of stories that they find work best and will be featured on NPR's Local Stories Project. They offer a guide, Athos says, to what they have found works. 
What kind of stories? Place explainers. Every city has mysteries or traditions or things that everyone who lives there knows about, but rarely do people stop and ask why or how. Place explainers take those things and simply explain them. Two, crowd pleasers. These include positive stories about a city, state, or region. It's something that gives people the opportunity to brag about their hometown, says Athos. Three, curiosity stimulators. These are just the weird, quirky, oftentimes science or technology stories. When you, feel, when you see them, you feel it's something you've never seen before, Athos explains. Four, news explainers. Should be self-explanatory, but apparently they're not. Five, major breaking news. Six, feel-good smilers. These stories make people smile, Athos said. He had to explain that. The Bat Kid story in San Francisco is a perfect example, he says. Seven, topical buzzers. What everyone is talking about, when everyone is talking about something that's happening locally, it fits here. Nine, awe-inspiring visuals. Those are the kind of stories NPR is sharing from localities around the country in its local stories project. Would you know about it had I not read the trace for you? Copyrighted feature of this broadcast, of course. Direct from the virtual trading floor of Corium Slocum Oliver, this is Mind Your Own Business, the pulse of the economic and financial world, delivered to you fresh each business year. I'm Mike Tuccinello on the virtual trading floor. This week, the head of the European Central Bank bit a bullet as big as all indoor Europe when Mario Draghi announced the bank would be buying corporate bonds in an attempt to jumpstart the stagnant European economy. You could call it qualitative easing, since European corporate bonds are a lot more risky than the Treasury bonds the Fed has been buying. Or you could just conclude that, at least as far as Europe is concerned, austerity has not been a panacea. Who knows? In the 21st century, maybe even panacea can't be a panacea. The legal squabbling over the car-sharing service Uber has shown a spotlight as big as the Bronx on the so-called sharing economy. Over at the Money Honey Desk, Sylvia Meal Argent has the latest twist on this trend that promises to be as big as a lot of other trends. Thanks, Mike. You could say the sharing economy started with Napster, the Internet song-sharing service of the late 90s. But Uber and Airbnb have taken it and their valuations into the stratosphere. Now comes the latest iteration of the Internet-abled sharing boom. It's called RXS, and the man behind it is Jordan Marsh Dillard. Jordan, that name's quite a mouthful. Yeah, Sylvia. So uh, my mom was a department store addict, and uh, when Jordan Marsh merged with Dillard's, uh, the name just stuck with her, uh, and then I came along. And and the rest is for the weary. Mm. Jordan, you're a startup entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and your company is called RXS. Tell us the idea behind it. 
So uh, Uber lets somebody else share his car with you for a ride. Mm -hmm. Airbnb lets somebody share his home with you for a night or two. Mm -hmm. I started wondering, what else could people share with other people who need it? (laughs) And the answer was? How many of us have bottles of prescription medications sitting in our medicine cabinets that are half empty? The cabinets are half empty? No, the bottles. (laughs) So uh, there are these prescription drugs which if you uh, bought them at the pharmacy might cost you or your insurance company hundreds of dollars, but which if you got them from someone who didn't need them anymore would cost a lot less. That's that's the whole idea behind RXS. Your excess prescription drugs get shared via someone we connect you with through a link with your favorite social network. We work with them all, and uh, we take a penny per milligram. Mm. And a milligram is? So it's a unit of measurement. Mm. Uh, we've tested the concept in three Canadian cities. Canada because? Because they speak English. Mm. And so based on that experience, I'm not going to say it works. Mm. I'm going to say it, it takes off like a rocket and just doesn't tail off. Or land in the ocean. So no. Uber has stirred backlash from the traditional taxi and car hire businesses. Mm-hmm. I would imagine there'd be some blowback to RXS from legacy businesses like uh, doctors. So doctors, pharmacists, there's a very big commercial infrastructure built up around the conventional medication dispersing industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're getting ready to disrupt that industry. (laughs) You'd be amazed if there wasn't some level of backlash. So yes, already we're hearing that lobbyists from the doctors and the pharmacists are pushing cities to make RXS illegal. Well, that would seem to be a big speed bump for your business. Uh so, in fact, kind of the opposite. I, I don't think anything has boosted Uber's stock price as much as the pushback from the taxi drivers. Uh, my board and I think that the med lobby is just turbocharging our buzz machine. Sounds like it's fun, at least for the machine. <laughs> but, Jordan, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this is a point the med lobby, as you call it, must be making. Mm-hmm. Is there any quality assurance when a person buys prescription drugs from an RXS? What do, what do you call the people who sell their excess medications? Uh, so we call them RXers. Mm. Uh, there's exactly the same quality assurances you get from Uber or Airbnb. If you're not happy with the efficacy or the dosage or anything, the community will know immediately, and that RXer will have a pretty hard time sharing the rest of his or her next prescription. The market is tough, but fair. Good note to end this conversation. Also, just let me say the IPO is coming soon. <laughs> Hopefully before the next crash. Definitely. From the Money Honey Desk, I'm Sylvia Meal Argent. Mike? And for this week, that's Mind Your Own Business. Support for this program comes in part from the Enterprise Foundation. Taking care of business is our business. Till next time, from the virtual trading floor of Corium Slocum Oliver, I'm Mike Tuccinello saying, this week, mind the business of someone you love. So long.
up from the boondocks this is the show from london ladies and gentlemen remember those backscatter x-ray machines we uh, had to go through from 2009 to last year and remember all the debate about whether the uh, the x-rays from them were uh, cumulatively uh, damaging our our health going forward well you know that debate is over because the machines have been retired so now comes this team of researchers from the University of California, San Diego, University of Michigan, and John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, there's more than one John at Johns Hopkins, 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 have discovered several security vulnerabilities in those machines. That's right. You got that radiation for nothing. In lab tests, the team was able to successfully conceal firearms and plastic explosive simulators from the Rapiscan Secure 1000, so-called because it wasn't. The team was also able to modify the scanner operating software so it presented an all-clear image to the operator even when contraband was detected. Quote, frankly, we were shocked by what we found. According to one of the uh, investigators, a clever attacker can smuggle contraband past the machines using surprisingly low-tech techniques. Unquote. The researchers explained these shortcomings. By the way, the pr- machines were designed and evaluated before they were trucked into airports, thanks to... Uh, among others, Michael Chertoff, who went on television saying we all should be protected by these machines at the time he was a lobbyist for Rapiscan, former head of uh, Homeland Security, of course. The system's designers seem to have assumed that attackers would not have access to a secure 1000 to test and refine their attacks, said one of the researchers. The researchers, though, were able to purchase a government surplus machine on eBay and subjected to lab testing. Many physical security systems that protect critical infrastructure are evaluated in secret without input or from the public or independent experts, the researchers said. In the case of the Secure 1000, that secrecy did not produce a system that can resist attackers who study and adapt to new security measures. You'll find them now in jails, courthouses, and other government facilities where they <laughs> can be easily spoofed. Don't you feel safer now? Sure you do. And now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Sorry, sorry. 
Delaware governor, I think we have a lot of governors apologizing this week for some reason. Delaware Governor Jack Markle's office apologized for a tweet containing a link to a racy photo of a woman wearing what appears to be leather straps around her neck and chest. Quote, an inappropriate photo was inadvertently sent out earlier. We're looking into how this occurred, but apologize to anyone who was offended, said the Twitter account. His office deleted the tweet 17 minutes after it was posted, but a website that documents deleted tweets by politicians captured it. A longer statement clarified the situation. The statement said the link was supposed to be to a photo that had just been uploaded to the Internet of the governor's education announcement. But the auto-generated link for the picture was inadvertently altered. As a result, the picture linked to the tweet was a random, unrelated, and inappropriate picture that had been on the Internet since 2010. The tweet was deleted, and we apologize for the error. One of Britain's top universities has landed itself in hot water after sending an email to its students calling them Kung Fu Pandas. London School of London School of Economics wrote to all students who'd successfully gained a place on undergraduate courses. It was a confirmation email titled, Dear Kung Fu Panda. This is to certify that AA Kung Fu Panda Tiger Test Test has firmly accepted an unconditional offer of admission to London School of Economics. Unfortunately for the university, Nearly 70% of their students come from overseas, and a third of those are from Asia. I thought it was some kind of racist joke at first, said Christy Pang, one of the new students. But it turned out to be some kind of test. The universities quickly sent another mass email apologizing for the blunder. Damage was already done, and some accused the university of flagrant racism. It was a technical problem with coding in the database, said a spokesperson. The email did not pick up some of the fields correctly. Instead of inserting the applicant's name, the email included the name from a test record, which is Kung Fu Panda. The use of the name merely reflects that a member of the staff who set up the test record is a fan of the film. Other test names included Piglet, Paddington Homer, Bob, and Tinkerbell. Another governor apologizes. Governor Mark Dayton of Minnesota apologized to county officials for the troubled rollout of Minnesota's online health insurance exchange, calling the initial glitches with Immensure. The biggest disappointment of his first term. He's running for re-election. I want to apologize for the excessive burdens it's placed on you, your budgets, and your people, he said. Calling its rocky start of the service his biggest disappointment so far, he said it's got better and will continue to get better, but it still has a ways to go. A ways to go, said the governor. The Wyoming State Bar invited Dick Cheney prominent Republican with deep Wyoming ties to be keynote speaker at its annual convention. Next week, some lawyers have objected. The state bar is a quasi-governmental entity. It uses some taxpayer money. In its announcement of Cheney's speech, it published an unedited biography submitted by Cheney in which he criticized President Obama. President Obama began shortly after taking office to dismantle the security policies that had kept the nation safe, the Cheney biography stated. His policy decisions have led to a reversal of the gains America made in the war on terror in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, and a weakening of America across the globe. The latest edition of the State Bar magazine featured an apology from the Bar for running Cheney's material. The Bar will now re-examine its long-standing practice of running speakers' biography materials without editing them. Another magazine apologizes, The Economist, you've heard about it earlier in this broadcast. In our review of The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery in the Making of American Capitalism by Edward Baptist, we said, Mr. Baptist has not written an objective history of slavery. Almost all the blacks in his book are victims, almost all the whites villains, unquote. 
There's been widespread criticism of this, and rightly so. Slavery was an evil system in which the great majority of victims were blacks, and the great majority of whites involved in slavery were willing participants and beneficiaries of that evil. We regret having published this and apologize for having done so. The Economist magazine, ladies and gentlemen. But wait, there's more. A PR firm dreaming up buzz for a series called Sleepy Hollow apologized this week for launching an ill-conceived Sleepy, Follow, a Sleepy Hollow Headless Day campaign after a second American journalist was killed by decapitation. The Headless Day promo was released shortly after the beheading of Stephen Sotloff was made public. We apologize for the unfortunate timing of our Sleepy Hollow Headless Day announcement. Our deepest sympathies are with the Soloff family, Sotloff family, and we don't take the news lightly. Had we known this information prior, we would have never released the alert and realized it's in poor taste, said the mea culpa email from Think Jam, which has offices in London, New York, and Los Angeles. The PR campaign featured a quartet of cheekily morbid e-cards celebrating decapitation, issued by the Think Jam LA office to promote the show's digital Blu-ray and DVD release. A 12-second video of Al Franken, Senator, U.S. Senator from Minnesota, sporting traffic cones like parts of the female anatomy have uh, generated a ruckus in Minnesota. Apologies, demands for them, and indignation were more abundant than meaningful dialogue last week during a bizarre public exchange surrounding the video. Franken ultimately apologized for the video, calling it a thoughtless moment he regrets after a state lawmaker and others called on him to do so. The video... From 2012 shows him, apparently unaware, he's being filmed grinning while holding orange cones to his chest like women's breasts. State Senator Michelle Fischbach and four other female GOP lawmakers wrote to the chairman of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party calling for Franken's apology. Franken's GOP challenger quickly joined the fray. Anyway, Al Franken apologized. I, Al Franken, apologize. Saying the hubris and vanity were his downfall, former New Orleans technology czar Greg Meffert delivered a remarkably abject apology in federal court this week, pleading for mercy from a judge who in 2011 sentenced his corrupt benefactor to 17 and a half years in prison. The halting emotional speech, coupled with assertions from federal prosecutors that his cooperation helped build the government's case against former Mayor Ray Nagin, apparently paid off U.S. District Judge Eldon Fallon, sentenced Meffert to 30 months in prison. U.S. Attorney called efforts once in a decade cooperation. I'm sorry for all the actions and decisions I made all those years ago, said Meffert. The truth is I've lost everything I had. I've lost the ability to even provide for my family. I lost my name, in a sense, because of all hundreds of articles on Google and everywhere else. Those will follow me for the rest of my life. I'm sorry the most because it was wrong. The thinking that went into it was alien to me now. Perez Hilton, the Internet gossip czar, has apologized. He apologized for posting the uh, nude photos of Jennifer Lawrence. The incident has inspired him to no longer publish nude images of stars on his website. He wound up deleting the pictures after an outcry from readers. At work, we often have to make quick decisions. I made a really bad one today and then made it worse. I feel awful and I'm truly sorry. He then followed up with a long apology on YouTube. He felt the pressure to get the photos up quickly. When people started calling him a rapist and sex offender for publishing the pictures, he realized he was wrong. I was never contacted by a publicist or lawyer. I genuinely took the photos down because I stopped and thought about it. And because of you, 
he says. As a result of what happened to Lawrence, he will no longer post intimate photos of celebrities on his website. Imagine my relief, ladies and gentlemen. If I were a celebrity. Dateline Los Angeles, speaking of celebrity, CeeLo Green has apologized for his controversial remarks on rape. The singer and producer returned to Twitter and tweeted an apology after he came under heavy fire over the weekend, comparing rape to a home burglary and implying women can only be raped if they're conscious when it happens. He later deleted, deleted the tweets or detweeted the leets. And in his apology, he wrote, I truly and deeply apologize for the comments attributed to me on Twitter. Or you didn't write them? Is this attributed to you, babe? Babe? Those comments were idiotic, untrue, and not what I believe, he wrote in his apology. Uh, in his apology, he didn't use all capitals and three exclamation points in a row like he did in his original tweets. Many found the comments particularly offensive because CeeLo Green recently pleaded no contest to slipping ecstasy into a woman's drink. TBS canceled his reality series, The Good Life, after the sentence. He was sentenced to 360 hours of community service. Sources say the cancellation was based solely on the program's ratings. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news from outside the bubble. Well, this is from the Independent of London. Guess who GQ magazine, British edition, named as its philanthropist of the year? Tony Blair. And the year was this year. The uh, organizer of the GQ Men of the Year Awards, Richard Dodgson, says a little controversy is no bad thing. We like to have celebrities at our event who cause a bit of a stir, he said. So having Tony was fantastic. We like to have people who have opinions and are forthright, unquote. The publication's decision to award the former British Prime Minister the honor of Philanthropist of the Year was met with amusement by some and outright condemnation by others who felt his controversial decision to invade Iraq was at odds with the definition of a philanthropist. But now, coming up, there'll be more about Tony Blair in a new and related copyrighted feature. Revolving door walls this week, the revolving door between the public sector and the private sector. Two former U.S. senators, former Republican Majority Leader Trent Lott of Mississippi and Democrat John Bro of Louisiana. Hey, they're from adjoining states. They're now working as lobbyists for the Russian-owned Gazprom Bank. That bank, controlled by the Russian state-owned Gazprom Energy Company, company, is a target of U.S. sanctions. The filing was first spotted by the Center for Public Integrity listing the two former senators as lobbyists on behalf of the institution for, quote, banking laws and regulations, including applicable sanctions, unquote. Lott and Bro, since they left the Senate, have become experienced lobbyists to their former colleagues in Congress. 
And getting back to our old friend Tony Blair, he's gone through the revolving door. He uh, now, longer, no longer prime minister, is giving strategic advice to Kazakhstan's autocratic president. Uh, became known this week to the British newspaper The Telegraph in a letter to Nursultan Nazarbayev. Blair told the Kazakh president that the slaughter of unarmed civilians protesting against his regime should not obscure, tragic though they were, should not obscure the enormous progress his country had made. Blair is paid millions of pounds a year to give advice to Nazarbayev. Goes on to suggest key key passages to insert into a speech that the Kazakhstan president was giving at Cambridge to defend the action of killing the unarmed civilian protesters. Blair is played through his private consultancy, Tony Blair Associates which is understood to deploy a number of consultants in key ministries in Kazakhstan. The letter was sent a couple years ago ahead of the speech being given by Nazarbayev at Cambridge University. A few months earlier, at least 14 protesters were shot and killed and another 64 wounded by Kazakhstan's security services in the oil town of Zhanaozen. Other protesters, mainly striking oil workers, were rounded up and allegedly tortured. Blair had begun working for Nazarbayev just a few weeks before the massacre. On notepaper-headed office of Tony Blair, Blair wrote, Dear Mr. President, here's a suggestion for a paragraph to include in the Cambridge speech. I think it best to meet head-on the issue of the massacre. The fact is you've made changes following it, but in any event, these events, tragic though they were, should not obscure the enormous progress that Kazakhstan has made. With very best wishes, I look forward to seeing you in London. Yours ever, Tony Blair. Nazarbayev has been president of oil and gas-rich Kazakhstan since he gained independence from the Soviet Union. He last won presidential, the last won presidential election in 2011 with 96% of the vote, so he's got to be good. He advised his client to insert into his speech one paragraph beginning, I love my country. Blair, Blair's verbiage was followed by Nazarbayev when he delivered the speech, except he neglected to mention the site of the massacre by name. Human Rights Watch says Kazakhstan's poor human rights record continued to deteriorate in 2013 with authorities cracking down on free speech and dissent through misuse of overly broad laws. The revolving door works, ladies and gentlemen, and it's not the only thing that does. Our lives are filled with aromas and odors, many of them good, like the smell of an ocean breeze or the sweet scent of the rose. Others are a bit nastier, like the stench of a dark alley or the reek of a massacre. Until now, you could only try to cover up those bad odors and how they happened. Until now. Hi, I'm Tony Blair, with wonderful news for everyone who's wished they could just wish away nasty aromas. Now you can, with Tony's. Imagine, after just one application, even the memory of the pong of dead bodies in the street is gone for up to 30 days. But Tony's is not an ordinary air freshener. It doesn't try to mask bad odors with strong and artificial floral scents. Tony's actually works on a neurochemical level inside the human brain to distract it from even perceiving those nasty aromas, replacing those perceptions with visions of progress and plenty, as if by magic. But it's not magic. It's based on the latest scientific brain research in laboratories I've funded myself. Because after all, I am a philanthropist. Tony's works by blocking the olfactory receptors of your brain, 
by overloading the audio and visual receptors with more pleasant stimuli. And I know it works. I've used it myself in situations far more challenging than those you'll ever face. Because after all, I'm a Middle East peace envoy. And believe me when I tell you that powerful people around the world have paid hundreds of thousands for the patented Tony's technology. Now it's available to you for less than the price of a new car. For daily household mishaps like a dog's accident or a kitchen fire, you don't need the exceptional odor-erasing power of Tony's. But when your position and possibly your life depends on it, you can depend upon Tony's. You know, brutal dictatorial power never smells nice. But Tony's makes the, hey, go away. And it's only distributed by the most reputable dealers in each region. Because after all, I'm a successful businessman. Next time you've got a stench that you just can't quench, remember Tony's. It's not just an air freshener. It's a Blair freshener. Use it directed. Follow all other instructions too. Gentlemen, you probably noticed in the news, BP has now been found by a federal judge to have uh, been guilty of uh, bad neglect in the Deepwater Horizon failure. Some $18 billion may be coming from them. And it appears they are a British company. But now they're making commercials about how nice they are in Alaska, so everything's cool up there, I guess. I, I, if I lived somewhere where BP was making commercials about how nice it is, I'd, I'd be really worried. That concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan, around the world to the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave, and the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world. You know, where Kissinger's book is being sold? Uh, via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your phone through Stitcher. Your smartphone. Your dumb phone is on its own. Your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from www.no.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes for free. And it'd be just like... Henry Kissinger's book being available on other planets, too, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh
tip of the show, Shapko, to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans and to Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London for help with today's broadcast. The uh, music heard here on, it's, a play, it's on a playlist right under the highlights every week's the show. And you'll find that and the mailing address for this broadcast and Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com. And you'll find the Harry Shearer on the Twitter. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. And from the boondocks. Thank you.